Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to, to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now, we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. So you probably have studied uh, some lessons on, if you haven't studied the, the city of Corinth and the church of Corinth, you've probably studied through the book of First and Second Corinthians. When I was preaching in Gulf Shores, uh, we, I moved there and they said, we want you to study Corinthians. I said, great. So in 2007, I did First and Second Corinthians. Then we did a uh, men's class, and about two years later, the men said, we want to study Corinthians. I said, okay. So we studied the book of Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians for a year. Within a year later, they said, we need to study Corinthians. So I did it again, about 2010 or 11. And uh, one time I asked one of the elders, he was teaching class in the auditorium, uh, about a year later. I said, what are you teaching in there? He goes, oh, we're studying Corinthians. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So we studied 1st and 2nd Corinthians no less than 10 times in 12 years. And so... Uh, Maybe some of us need the book that much, and that's great. We might be missing other things, but the book of 1 Corinthians specifically has a a great message about unity and about being able to really truly love one another, which I think is the crux of the book in chapter 13. So let's start with just a few things we know about Corinth. Let's talk about some of the geography. Some of you may have in the back of your Bible some maps, and you notice that the city of Corinth is located on this kind of narrow strip of land, uh, it's in southern Greece, and that little strip of land, is called an, uh, an isthmus, uh, is less than 10 miles wide from one place to the other. And it's really the only thing keeping Greece from becoming a full-blown island. And I just find that's interesting. In fact, that little section of land that's only 10 miles wide is called the Bridge of Greece. And the city of Corinth, at one time, was one of the major cities for world commerce. And so they did a lot of things on both of those sea coasts, for instance, on the east side, people would come from Asia Minor, from Syria and from Egypt. They would reach the port there. And then on the west side, they would come from Italy and Sicily and Spain. Uh, and Lecom, Le- Le- I think the way they say it, is the, the seaport on the other side. And so these two seaports uh, in this region were very well populated, very wealthy. And because of that, with the wealth and with the trade, 
sometimes came additional problems, which that will be addressed in the book. Uh, if the traders didn't use those port cities, they would do the trade in Corinth, and, and there was about a 200-mile round trip from uh, one area to the other uh, in doing this trade route, and it was a very dangerous road. So it was almost like when you got to Corinth, it was like, take a breath of you know, fresh air, take a load off, relax. It was a city that was known for just kind of letting your hair down, if you will, not to put too much of a pun on something later in 1 Corinthians. But the idea is that this was a place where you could kind of go and relax, like a vacation place uh, to be able to kind of get, get you know, comfortable. Uh, I read that when this little area that we say is 10 miles wide, uh, for a certain part of their history, they would actually lay out uh, tree trunks or poles, you consider them to be like telephone poles, and they would actually put, so the ships didn't have to go completely all the way around, they would put them on top of these, these uh, poles or these tree trunks, and they would then slowly move it the 10 miles. And that, you know, it's kind of neat the way that they did it. It was almost like, a, you can think of it like a railroad track, but it, it just rolls instead of having it actually nailed down. So they would do that with these ships from one end to the other. So it saves a lot of time going all the way around. And, uh, and while the ship is being transferred from one place to the other, you could make your way into town and, you know, just have a, a great time. Unfortunately, with that comes some of the problems that we see uh, in the city. And the flat terraces here, they were about 1,500 uh, feet off of sea level. And so some of the areas, you had beautiful views. So you could go up and have a lunch or uh, take some friends and just relax, as you could see. And you can see kind of here on the, on, the, uh, on the screen here, see this 10 miles wide? So you have water over here and water over here. So you can make your way up. And here's some of the city here. You could make your way up and into town while that's being done and do some trade and say, okay, well, we'll get back. Guys, we'll get back on the ship in, in, in seven days or in ten days or whatever it might be. They had good water. They had good roads. They had uh, a lot of bronze in this area. One of the things they were known for also in Corinth was their public baths. They had these huge uh, areas where you could come in and you could bathe. Now, they had a library like most of the, the Roman cities did, a Greek influence um, they had museums, they had trade from various uh, groups, but anyways, it was, it, was a, it was a really, if you were a person who liked to travel, you would have wanted to spend some time in Corinth. Another thing, too, that's really neat, and I don't think I have the picture on here, uh, I was doing some research on Corinth a few years ago and found that they actually had a cooling system in the marketplace. You would see it kind of like a, I don't want to say refrigeration system. But they had these cooling panels, cooling rocks within the marketplace. So if you brought your goods there, uh, they could be stored for a considerable length of time. They also took and made an area for the people who did canning. They canned fruits and vegetables. Uh, also with these areas where they had salt and they had um, almost like built-in, what we would say, a walk-in freezer, they were able to keep meat longer. So this was a place where it was happening, and you could really do a lot of stuff. And, and food didn't perish as quickly, obviously. So if you wanted to, to go and have a nice restaurant, go out to eat, this would have been a great place to go. Uh, in the times of the New Testament, though, we have trouble. By the time we get to Paul's writing, he sees some of the flaws in the culture. They became too comfortable. And when Christians are raised, some of these individuals that were in this church had been uh, taught and had been raised up there for just a few years, or maybe we'd say 20, 30 years by this point, they had become comfortable with living as a Christian in a very secular society. 
And this happens even in our culture today. People who become a Christian uh, and they get into the church and they start reading their Bible and they say, well, there's some things I need to avoid. But if society's still doing it, they're still teaching it, still practicing it, and you're desensitized by it, then you either don't talk about it uh, because you don't want to you know, cause a rift, or you just simply do it and you don't care what anybody says about it. And that's what happened here. They didn't care about uh, the rich people getting to church early and eating all the communion. They didn't care about that. Uh, some of the brethren didn't care when the money was collected to be able to take and give to certain people. They were using it, uh, well, we won't say fraudulently, but inappropriately. We also had people coming to church that were saying you need to wear head coverings and others saying not. You had people that were saying, uh, I'm going to follow Paul, he's the only one I follow, and others saying, well, I like Apollos' preaching, and sometimes I like Peter's preaching. All these problems present themselves in the book of 1 Corinthians. And this is just the hem of the garment. There are many other issues. One, another one that's a big one was worship. They had a hard time uh, distinguishing what needed to be done in New Testament worship. And this is why it's so important we study the entirety of the New Testament. Because there is a pattern clearly laid out in the book of Acts. I mean, it's, if you read Acts 2, and you move from chapter 2 to chapter 20, everything you see in chapter 2, they're doing throughout the book of Acts. Every time the church met, they, they did those same acts of worship. But when you study the New Testament in its entirety, you see that the church in Corinth is doing the same thing. You see the churches in Galatia are doing the same thing. You're seeing the church in Ephesus doing the same thing. These congregations who all learned from that first setting of the early church in Pentecost, all of those things are passed on from generation to generation. Every church is teaching and practicing the same thing. It's the same reason why you should be able to travel anywhere throughout the United States or the world, and when you see a sign that says Church of Christ, you ought to know when you walk in the building what they're practicing. Because we know we can identify. We're not a denomination, but we do know we have an identifying factor that we belong to Jesus, we're a part of his church, and if you are a church of the New Testament, this is what you do. But in Corinth, they became lax in some of those areas when it came to worship. One of the things was organization. So Paul has to define worship from chapter 12 and a little bit 13 to 14 to say things need to be done in order. They need to be done rightly. And they had women jumping up in the middle of the assembly. He says, you can't have that. So he has to pause and focus on some negative things. And church, sometimes we don't want to hear it, but sometimes... There has to be clarity from the pulpit. There has to be something that is spoken from the pulpit about direction for the church. And it's tough because we know the Bible's there and we read it, but sometimes people don't listen. So Paul has to say some very harsh words throughout the book. Now he starts by calling them saints in chapter 1. But by the end of the chapter, uh, in chapter 15 and 16, you see some of the brethren, they even had brethren in the church in Corinth, that did not even believe Jesus rose from the dead. Now, how could you be a, a person who worshiped in the Lord's church and went to a church that practiced communion on the first day of the week and not know, chapter 15, that, that Jesus rose from the grave? So Jesus, not only the teaching of Jesus' uh, uh, resurrection wasn't noted or preached enough, but they have brethren that are just so confused. So he says, here, let me explain it to you. He does a fabulous job of that. So a little bit of the history, Corinth is destroyed about 146 B.C., rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., so for the most part, this is a fairly, fairly new town. I mean, most of it's all being real, rebuilt and repurposed, which is really good. Uh, the Roman government had a, a headquarters, if you will, in Achaia, and in Acts 18 and verse 12, that's where the proconsul lives. 
So there is a lot of um, government, we say political uh, expediency to this city um, for commercial reasons earlier I said. There's also a temple, so there is worship that takes place, idol, idol worship. Uh, Missy and I were talking in the car here. I, I, I try not to chase too many rabbits, I really do. But there are so many things in this book that I would love to tackle with you. I would I really love to dig in. But if you have questions, we can, we can go there. But one of the things that I've always found fascinating uh, about Corinth was the worship that they had. Like they had the Temple of Apollo there. Uh, it's on a, 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 a hill. It's about the size of a football field. And uh, there is another, the god of healing. There is uh, Dionysus, that's the god of the vineyard. There's Isis, which is the uh, oriental god. Uh, it was actually banned in Rome, interestingly enough, but allowed in Corinth. There's Aphrodite has a temple, the goddess of love. So all of these are located in Corinth. So just about anywhere you go, there is a temple, and most of those temples had prostitution. And because of the prostitution being such a high uh, high crime and all these other things that went along with it, Paul has to address that in Corinthians. And so he does that. He does that with the head covering issue. So uh, the sanctuary to Aphrodite, for instance, uh, up on the hill, they had over a thousand prostitutes. And they would make their way to town uh, and they would wear sandals that said, follow me. And so in Greek, and so they would see the letters, follow me. It's interesting that Jesus uses the same words to call his apostles, follow me. When they walked through the cities, they would have seen the footprints, follow me, all the way to the temple, and they would see the prostitutes in their, on their way, and they would follow them to the temple. They would follow them by the, by the sandal prints. And so a lot of, a lot of really ugly things come out uh, in this city because of their, their love of, of cultic ritual, their love of, and a lot of it comes back to commerce. When they were rich, they wanted to, when you, when you, you know, have all that money, sometimes you want to play do things that are inappropriate. And so the city of Corinth just starting to really grow and build by the time Jesus uh, comes into the scene. Another thing here is there's synagogues. And in the synagogues in Corinth, there were already Gentile converts. So in a lot of the cities that Paul goes to through the book of Acts, it's, it's I want to say, predominantly Jewish. But in Corinth, there was a high number of Gentile converts uh, and so that brings in another whole list of problems, considering the meat that's offered to idols. That's something he deals with in this book. And so a lot of the things that he has to tackle come from a uh, Hellenistic or from a Gentile mindset. So some of the Jews are sitting there going, yeah, Paul, get them. You know, this is, they're amening him the whole time. But they, they, he has to deal with that very, uh, very carefully because Peter has been there preaching very harshly about Judaism. Remember, he's one who early on converts Cornelius and is very vocal in chapter 11 and chapter 15 about the inclusion of Gentiles, but it was his practice, at least it was in Galatia, that when he had a tendency to fellowship with one group, he almost always chose the Jews first. And so Paul has to carefully, he knows there's a lot of Peter followers, and they even call themselves Cephas, Cephasites, you know. So he says, okay, I want you to know that we are all Christians. He said, Peter didn't do this for you. I didn't do this for you. It's Jesus. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he'll deal with those things from both Gentile and Jew Jewish mindsets to try to bring the people together. And you do that in chapter 13 with the, the chapter on love. Uh, 
Another thing, too, that I, I don't think we need to miss in 1 Corinthians is that Paul does say what needs to be said, but he also is very careful in the way that he presents the message. Now, I know it's 16 chapters. This is a huge book. We get to 2 Corinthians, 13 chapters. These are big books. He wrote at least four letters to this church. But Paul knows that if they can follow the pattern of the New Testament church, if they can do what the apostles were teaching them to do early on, before all the Bible, the New Testament anyway, was canonized, Corinth would be a model church for the rest of the congregations of the Lord's people. And this is, I don't think this can be overemphasized. Paul's desire was that each church follow the same pattern. If you go to back to the book of Acts, this is what he's doing. He's going to every church, every city, and he's appointing elders in every city. Now, why is he doing that? Because the apostles are dying out. Read the book of Acts. They're dying out. So he's saying, now we need elders. We need men that meet qualifications. Chapter 20, he's going to pull them together. He's going he's to minister to them, if you will. He does the same thing on through the rest of the book of Acts. Every time he has a chance, he's meeting with the elders. He's encouraging the elders. And he's empowering them, not just by the power of the Holy Spirit, but empowering them by, by, by giving them uh, acceptance and saying, I trust you, I believe in you. That's what, that's what Timothy's about. I believe in you, Timothy. You know, Philemon, I believe in, I believe in Onesimus, and I believe in you. Uh, when you read um, the book of Titus, same thing. P Paul is going behind people and saying, you can do this. You can stick to the pattern. And so he, this is a church we would have given up on. I'll be honest with you. If the nearest church was 65 miles away, I would have rode a donkey to church. I wouldn't have gone to Corinth. I wouldn't have. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, in my right mind, worship at a congregation that had this much wrong with it. Paul never gives up on New Testament Christians. He knows that with instruction and with teaching, and why is it in our New Testament? They must have got something out of it, right? He does not give up on the brethren. So it's very important that we put all of our trust in our Lord, but we also dig into the Bible, dig into the Word, and say, how can we follow the pattern of the New Testament church? Paul's saying, get on the same page. And yes, we can get on the same page. So Luke's background, uh, and I mentioned him as a Gentile a few chapters. We were in, well, we were in Acts with Luke's story. In chapter 18... Luke gives us a little bit more information about the church. And if you've got your Bibles, you can notice in chapter 18, Paul preaches in Athens, and then he decides to go on to Corinth. Now, he is one of the few people that will move from city to city without being forced out. Okay, there in the early church, a lot of times the persecution comes, and they would move somewhere else. Paul is going wherever he wants to. He's doing whatever he wants to. He feels compelled by the cross. He's headed to Rome. But he's not afraid to go to difficult hotspots. Corinth is no different. And I, it's, I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that he has the boldness to speak at the Areopagus, or the Areopagus, depending on how you pronounce it, in, in Acts 17, and the very next place he goes is Corinth. He feels like, if I can teach these pagans, if I can teach in the, amid, amongst a bunch of idols, then I'm ready for Corinth. And so he's ready for the next challenge. He makes his way into Corinth. He begins preaching. He begins uh, teaching there. And he's working with Aquila and Priscilla, who are tent makers. They make an instant connection. And uh, don't miss the fact also that he was from Pontus. Uh, she was a Jewish exile from Rome. And those are connections Paul had to other cities. Paul, when he went to an area, he found commonality with people. And this is, this is a good thing. 
when you move to a new place or you're traveling to a new place, try to find people that, that you can have fellowship with very quickly. Learn names, learn people, learn um, you know, areas of town when you move to a new city very quickly uh, because you will find that there is a lot of benefit to being connected to certain people. I think I've told the story here before about a city I lived in. I won't tell where, but it was north of Alabama, and it starts with a T. And when I was there, living in this little city, uh, we showed up to a restaurant one time, and they would not set us anywhere. We sat there, waited, little kids running around, you know, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't seat us. I said, just, we're just going to have to wait. We're going to find some people coming in. The oh, John, good to see you. Come on in. You got 12. We got a table in the corner. I'm not exaggerating. This goes on for 30 minutes. And I thought, we were just here three months ago with one of the elders, and we got seated quickly. And I realized that we were outsiders. We were never going to get a table. We had to leave the restaurant. Came back another time. Same, same issue. Great food. They said everybody else that they knew, but they wanted us to leave. And I thought, man, that's, that's a terrible thing. But if you know people, you have connections, sometimes it can get you places. Paul uses that not for a uh, benefit financially, not for a benefit for anything physical in nature, but to open spiritual doors. And that's how he gets into the church in Corinth. That's how he makes contact with these people. And I, I argue that when you get to chapter 16, one of the problems that Corinth seems to have is it doesn't seem to have leaders. It doesn't, have, doesn't seem to have any elders. And Paul sees this as a fault in chapter 1 when he says, you know, I'm thankful I didn't baptize very many here. Because God has called me to preach the gospel. He talks about uh, Stephanus. He talks about uh, a handful of men. But when you get to chapter 16, he's going to submit the names of some men that he thought to be great leaders. And that's his subtle way of saying, y'all are having problems because you don't have shepherds. Here are a few guys you need to consider. Uh, another, another issue that, okay, Steve, you got a question? Right. Right. One of the reasons is because, I believe it's because they were a highly Gentile populated congregation. The elder role is an Old Testament concept. It's a Jewish concept. So when you go to a Gentile people and try to convert them to a Jewish mindset, it's not a practice like circumcision. But you have to jump through a lot of hoops. They are used to, Gentiles, Greeks are used to, a uh, Roman Caesar. They're used to one guy being the head. They would have loved the pastor system most denominations have. They would have loved it in Corinth. In fact, they may already have it there because it says, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Paulus. So they were very Gentile-minded. They didn't want to have, and, and another thing too is in Gentile and Greek culture, they liked to have one person at the top. They didn't, you wanted to be able to have the authority yourself. A plurality of elders would have been difficult in Corinth. Uh, and, but he, if, he, if you notice in chapter 16, he's going to give several names because you needed to have. And this is another thing, too. It's a, just bear with me. This is another issue when you have churches without elders. You need shepherds to guide you. Uh, it's also important that the preacher not become a, a pastor, if you will, that he takes all of the authority. Uh, I had a conversation with a pastor south of us here at a large church. And he told me, he said, uh, it's very simple in our culture. He said, we have committees that run everything in the church, and I have a seat on every committee. 
And I said, you got to be exhausted. And he goes, well, I have veto power too. The, the, the brethren can meet and they can make a decision. And they did that with the purchase of a building. I watched it happen. They had a, a building they wanted to purchase, our building down there. The pastor changed his mind at the last minute, at the last minute, and vetoed the whole thing. And so sometimes when you have one person who is dictating all of the rules, some people like that. They prefer to know that they're going to one individual. But even from the Old Testament, even from the, the synagogues, the way that they met, you had to have at least three. Those, those men met together. Jethro, in a way, is very loving what he does to Moses about appointing elders. But he also, in a way, is just a little bit chastising him because Moses would come home exhausted with no time for Jethro's daughter and grandchildren. And so he says, you need to have men appointed to handle some of this business. So in the church, we need a plurality of men. And this is another issue in Corinth as well. Men, biblically, men who lead the church. And uh, in Gentile culture, they were not, a, they, most of the temples in Corinth were to women. They worshiped women. Uh, they, they saw women as, in some cultures around this time, almost be, to be superior to men. In fact, that's carried over even today. A lot of our style and a lot of our lingo comes from Greco-Roman culture. In fact, when you refer to nature, you refer to her as mother nature. That's right. There's no father nature. It's father time, but mother nature. So even from the perspective of the goddesses and gods, the mythical gods of the Old Testament times, where you're seeing these cultures teaching this nonsense, they elevated women, and so Greeks would do that. And so Paul has to say, time out, men lead the church. There's a headship that needs to be addressed. So anyway, back to the work. So the work of the church here, there are synagogues that are starting in Corinth. And so Paul uses that to his advantage. But like I said, most of the Christians are not Jews. They're coming very quickly to the faith from a Gentile background. The guys that he talks about in chapter 1 and then deals with in chapter 16 are men's, men like Gaius, Crispus, Stephanus. These are the individuals that he had personally influenced, that he had taught. Uh, and I don't think this is cronyism. I know it's not. He's not saying these men are the only men you need to hear. But he's saying, I know these men personally, and I know they don't stand for a lot of this, this nonsense. Um, so the work of the church begins to thrive. Chapter 12 tells us that one of the things they were growing in very strongly was the, worship, or the, uh, the, the act of tongues. So you probably remember uh, chapter 13, right? What's chapter 13 about? Love, that's right. It's the chapter of love. In chapter 12, he has to deal with the spiritual gifts. And he tells them, which is what I said when we were studying the book of Acts, is that an immature church, a baby church, if you will, in its infancy, needed miracles. That's the only thing that could convince them that Jesus was the Christ and that the church is, is uh, from God. So they needed those miracles. But what Paul tells them in chapter 12, when they have all these gifts, he says you need to desire the greatest gift. The greatest gift is not a supernatural fruit. The greatest gift is a natural fruit. It's natural for a Christian to have love. He does that in chapter 13. But notice here in chapter 12, at the beginning in verse 1, and before this, he says you need to, he talks about the Lord's Supper, he talks about worship, 
And this is one of the things they were confused about in worship. He says, concerning the spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles. So again, there, it's the Gentile influence. Carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. He is one. He says there are differences of the ministry. Same Lord, but differences of ministries. Differences of spiritual gifts, right? Verse 6. And there are diversities of activities. So you kind of see the flow chart. He's going to talk about these, these gifts, supernatural gifts, and the effects of those supernatural gifts. So he says they have this, it's the same God who works all in all, verse 6. Verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. In other words, it's for the benefit of the whole church. And today, there are people on your television, on your internet, that claim to be spiritual in nature of the church, and they do these so-called miraculous events, but it is clear, it is evident that it is about the elevation of the individual who's doing it and not God. You go to the show, you go to the entertainment of it. And so Paul's showing here, if something's done by God, he is the one who's elevated. So the supernatural gifts were not meant to bring glory to Paul. They were not meant to bring glory to Peter or anyone else who had them. They were meant to bring glory to the Lord. So it was a temporary thing. And as those gifts began to die out, as the apostles died out, something greater was going to come behind it. He says, all the manifestations of the Spirit are given to each one for the profit of all. For verse 8, to one is given the word of, of wisdom through the Spirit. So these are the different diversities. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works in all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. That's another clear point from chapter 12 to take into chapter 13. If you became a Christian and then Paul came to your city and he gave you or, or distributed upon you what we would say the baptism of the Holy Spirit, puts his hands on you, and you received a gift, it was not Paul's choice what you received. It was not your choice what you received. And they would take that gift that they had, and hopefully they would use it to the glory of God and not themselves. Roll back to chapter 8 in Corinthians, or in the uh, book of Acts. A guy named Simon the Sorcerer. He says, I gotta have this gift. I want the ability to pass it on. I want to be, I want Peter or John to touch me. And he's, he's obviously called out for such things. Almost we would say like a, 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 an act of blasphemy to try to put himself in the same role. But as he does this, there is a clear, distinct pattern that as they were given that gift, it was the Spirit who determined how it would be used. So, in this chapter, Paul's going to say one of the things they wanted the most was the ability to speak in tongues. Now, why would that be the most coveted gift? Well, what did we just learn? about the city of Corinth. Lots of trade. What? Who are you trading with? 
You got it. People from both sides of the sea, from all kinds of languages. So it would be a huge advantage if you were a market tradesman inside the city or around the temple selling idols, which they did, and some of them came to church anyway, if you could have the ability to speak in tongues. That's why it is such a hotbed issue in Corinth and not anywhere else. So Paul has to say to them, that's not the greatest gift. And so he says what you need to do is desire at the end of the chapter the greatest gift. And he also says here in chapter, chapter 12, verse 12, did I talk about the, uh, the story of um, the Republic a few weeks ago? I think I did. Okay, anyways, Plato's Republic gives this great illustration about how society was viewed. They viewed society as a, the human body. One part was greater than another. As you went on down the body, it became worse. You know, Up top was really good. If you were an ear, an eye, a mouth, good stuff. Hands and feet, lower on the totem pole, literally. So Paul is using that analogy, and he says each part of the body can't say it's not part of the body. Each part is connected. So every gift, speaking in tongues, having superior knowledge, being able to interpret tongues, were all equal. Not one spiritual gift was greater than another. But in Corinth, they thought if you could speak in tongues and you could use it in the marketplace, you were better than everybody else. So he says, if the whole body, verse 17, were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? You get the point. Every part of the human body is necessary. Every person in the church is equal there is not one individual that is greater than another. There was a man one time in our church growing up that was trying to split our congregation. He actually stood out front of the church, my grandfather present, and he said, one of these days, I'm going to have this building. This is going to be my church. And my grandpa took his keys out. He said, here's the key to the building. You can take it. I'll tell you where you can find the deed in, there, <laughs> in the file cabinet. And one of the elders said, how, how, why, you can't do that. And he said, why not? It's just a building. If the man is so obsessed with a building, let him have it. Let him take the mortgage. Let's go down here and start the church again in a neutral location and get away from this nonsense. Sometimes people are just so antagonistic and so, you know, bent on conflict. And in the church, it ought to be about love. No one person is greater than another. So this correspondence with the church, why does Paul write so much? To these people he saw them as equal he saw them as people who needed love and needed encouragement most of us would write them off we've probably been at churches in, our, in the past maybe where we grew up in this congregation maybe we left this congregation and came somewhere else and we say you wouldn't believe what they're doing down there or up there that you wouldn't believe what's going on it's not even the same church anymore it's not the they're not teaching the same things Paul saw that in Corinth. You know what he did? He wrote them a very lengthy letter and told them how to get back on track. And so he didn't give up on them. And again, that's what a loving person does. So chapter 13 is about love. The book is written somewhere around 57 AD. Uh, he writes it from Ephesus. So he's in a congregation that also has struggled and suffered, but spiritually they have suffered. This is a congregation who is suffering from all kinds of ills. We, we noticed a few of them. They need to be more mature. So look at some of the things. This is kind of small print there. 
But uh, look at some of the things that they were struggling with in this congregation. They struggled with unity. They were insensitive towards certain brethren, especially weaker brothers, new Christians. They, uh, they somewhat uh, excluded from certain activities. They were extremely immature. They fought frequently. They had problems with humility. Pride is a major issue in chapter 4. Purity. And you want to talk about a church that's gone so far from the direction of the New Testament pattern. They have a man leading. I don't know what he's doing. Probably not preaching. But he's leading in some act of worship or something present publicly before the church that had actually taken his stepmother as his own wife. And his father's still living. So Paul says, you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with the sin in the camp. And he gives them explicit instructions on how to withdraw fellowship. And brethren, if we're going to be a church of the New Testament, there's going to be times we have to practice that. And so he says, you have to take and identify sin as sin. Uh, there's immorality. There's uh, sexual issues. In fact, there are brethren in the congregation in Corinth that were converted out of homosexuality. And you see a, a large number of people who lived in the Corinth culture that practice uh, what we consider now, um, uh, well, anyways, you know what I'm saying, fluid situation. They, they, they can determine one day to be a male and the next to be a female. And so Paul has to deal with that. Uh, the idea of liberty. So people who were very conservative were often using uh, their position to say, hey, look, you shouldn't do that because it offends me. Uh, and, and going on. Idolatry, they had the little idols around all the temples. He has to call them out on that. Uh, conforming to culture of, in Corinth. Loyalty, uh, in chapter 11, he's going to deal with worship. He's going to deal with women's role. Uh, spiritual things, chapter 12. And then love, chapter 13. The stability of the church, chapter 14, is about doing all things in order. Paul's going to say things like, um, God is not the author of confusion. Okay, he's not the author of confusion. Uh, God wants things decent and in order. And then being an authentic Christian, chapter 15, is about the resurrection. A lot of great information we gain that we didn't know from Acts about the way Jesus approached people after his resurrection. And then sincerity uh, in chapter 16. So these are, these are just a list of some of the things that are tackled here. Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Wrap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldswrap.com. Hope you have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.